2 Thessalonians, and I'm reading verses 13 to 17 of chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 13 to 17. Hear the word of God. But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brother, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth, to which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. Now may the Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father, who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. As the grass withers and the flowers fade, God's holy and errant work, it abides forever. May he bless it to us. Well, Paul wrote this letter because there was a lot of confusion over what he had said and taught them. Uh, He even references it again in verse 15, the traditions which were taught by oral communication and by letter. And when it comes to understanding uh, the return of the Lord and what we call eschatology, the theology of the end of things or the last things, What's going to happen before the Lord returns? There is still so much confusion. And what we see within this letter is a lot of clarification about some of the greater uh, evils and problems that are going to unfold just prior to the return of Christ. And we've looked at that in chapter, uh, chapters 1 and 2 thus far. There have been a lot of weighty things that have been revealed concerning the impending return of the Lord Jesus, what it means for the world. And it's overwhelming for us to think of God concerning these things. God is talking about the unleashing of his uh, flaming, fiery vengeance upon the world. Uh, That's no small thing, is it? it? It is a very disconcerting thing to consider. Uh, Those that uh, are being punished are being punished with an everlasting wrath and destruction. Uh, There is no end to hell. Hell is an eternal place of suffering and death. And, And we can't even begin to imagine that, can we? What it is to endure that. But there's also this apostasy within the church of Christ and a man of lawlessness who comes uh, working deception and hate and wickedness. And if you're like me, we often wonder in our own day, let alone in that time just before the great day of the Lord, how much more wicked can this world get? And, And that is without the man of lawlessness. Uh, revealed in that sense before us. And yet when we, as we saw last week, when you read verse 11 of chapter 2, we see it's God at work. 
we see it's God's plan and purpose to deal with this world that's in rebellion against him. And, and we can tend to do one of two things when we understand that God is over these things. We can just give it all up in, uh, just if you will, blind faith. God is sovereign. He's going to do what he pleases. So that's where it is. And it almost seems cold to say it like that, doesn't it? Or we can, what a lot of Christians fall into, is we become very pessimistic about how evil things are going to become, even more than they already are. And the struggle is contending with these matters, and contending with these matters with that thought that virtually everyone in the world will understand when we think about God, how can a loving God plan and do these things? It's not just overwhelming to think about what's happening, it's overwhelming to try to bring them into people's understanding and ideas about God. Where is God's love and power to do good? How can God be like this? And, and it perplexes people to that point where you're even going to hear some Christians who profess the Christian faith say, well, that's not a God that I believe in. You know, I don't want to be too blunt, but if you can't believe in a just and holy God who punishes sin, then why did he send his son? Really? And even though this is frightening, Paul, I believe, is writing this. God wants us to hear what is going to happen so that we will not become discouraged, despondent, anxious, unbelieving. But that our faith in our God and our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ would be strengthened. That we understand, however frightening these words may seem to be to us, that what God is doing is he is revealing to his people most clearly his hatred of sin. His hatred of this world of, of sin and rebellion against him, what it does to what he has created it to be. And it is to be frightening. We are to tremble before our God as we hear about his justice against wickedness. His justice that, that is against even our own sin and wickedness. His righteousness against all unrighteousness. And, and the overarching goodness of God. What kind of God would he be if he let evil continue? Is that God being good? No, because really what's before us here is the goodness of God to see that all of creation is freed from the penalty and power and presence of sin and restored to that beauty of perfection and glory in which he created it when he could look upon all of creation and see and say, it's very good. God himself, creation itself, is looking forward to that day when he once again can say, it's very good. 
That's why we read Revelation 5. It wasn't just what was being said, but did you note there in, in the, introdu- uh, the call to worship how all of creation, even the sea creatures, seem to be singing, worthy is the Lamb. Because He came and He died to seal, uh, sorry, to satisfy God's justice against uh, His own people so that He could come in that great and final day and, and bring about a restoration of all creation. We too will be redeemed from sin's destruction. And what God here is, He reveals that to us. He comes back to speak to us directly in these verses that are before us for us to know how our response is to be concerning that day of the Lord in all of its terrible judgment and the outpouring of God's wrath. We are to know that God holds his people in that day as the apple of his eye. I like that phrase. Uh, I use it often, but it's a, it's, it's a beautiful phrase. It first pops up in Deuteronomy 32, verse 10, when God looks at uh, his people, Israel, whom he has redeemed, Israel, whom he is bringing into the promised land. And he says, know that you are the apple of my eye. We read the history of Israel. They struggle to know that. <laughs> but God never forgot. And we are the great object of his love to his son. And God even says in Zechariah 2.8, Know that he who touches you touches the apple of God's eye. Isn't that something? You see, God, even as he reveals to us what is going to unfold in that great and powerful and awesome day of the Lord, God wants you to be assured that his plans and purposes are being done. And however terrible things may seem, you as his people, you as the church, you have nothing to fear. Rest assured. Rest assured. That's a word sometimes I find uh, it's easy to use and perhaps difficult to understand, but what does it mean to have assurance? And I think, as our confession says, I think it, it boils down to this, where we are able to rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Our assurance in our God is to translate into a praise and joy to him. Not pessimism. Not as he uh, warns in the beginning verses of chapter 2. Not with a shaken, troubled mind. Not with anxiety. But with assurance. We have a rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God. And that's where Paul brings us. So what we see in verse 13, first of all, is how we are bound to give thanks to God for all whom he has redeemed. You see that very first word, but, 
with all that is coming on. But we are bound to give thanks to God. And I believe very much, my friends, that that's how our assurance in the sovereignty of God is to be expressed so that it's just not a cold faith. Well, God is sovereign and he's going to do what he plans. No, when if we are assured of that, we are going to express thanks to him. We're bound to it. That word bound, it's, it's a word that speaks about being indebted to God. We have a debt to God when we think of his sovereignty at work in the history of the world. We are bound, indebted to give him thanks. And that word, giving him, it's, it's infinite. It's, in, it's a verb that's in the infinite. It, it, it means it's, it's never ceasing. It's always to be coming forth from our hearts. A verbal gratitude for God that he is sovereign. And you stop and think about it, how natural that should be to our hearts in expressing to God that confidence that we have in him. Knowing the day of the Lord. Knowing his unfailing mercies to his people. We owe God a constant expression of gratitude from the heart. Constant. It's not some spasmodic gratitude that gets expressed when some kind of gift or blessing is restored. How many of you heard? I always marvel at the season that we have just come through where people's generosity just seems to be more expressed at the end of the year. And it's, it's good. It's, I'm, not, I'm not decrying that. I think it's great that people feel especially moved to be more giving. But do you know how many times when people are on the opposite end of receiving those blessings in that time of the year, do you know how many times people say, this just restores my faith in humanity? And I always think, every time I hear that, I said, okay, give it a day. <laughs> Human nature is going to come through before you know it, and whatever faith you had restored in humanity is going to be crushed. And it will be, because uh, we, we can't keep that up. <laughs> we don't have the heart of goodness that God does, in that sense, to maintain that effort. And even, dear Christians, let's be honest, even for us, it's hard to maintain that heart of goodness. It's not about restoring faith in about recognizing the goodness of God toward us who, as we know, if we are in Christ, we are going to escape all that God has declared in, in respect of his flaming, fiery vengeance and everlasting wrath and destruction and the evil that will come with that man of lawlessness. We've been delivered we know that that is a gift that God is faithful to hold fast to. And that's why our 
thanksgiving, our gratitude is to be constantly expressed to God. We are beloved by the Lord, isn't that? We are bound to give thanks to God always for you. Brethren, beloved by the Lord. You stop and you think how God loves you. How he has loved you, how he continues to love you. Especially the Lord Jesus. You want to hear of Christ's love for you? My friends, read the upper room discourse in John's gospel, John chapter 13 to 17. I don't think there's a chapter there that doesn't deal with Christ saying, here's my love for you. Here's my love for you. Begins with with Jesus loving to the end those who were before him, those whom the Father gave him, one who was a traitor, eleven who were very proud. (laughs) It's remarkable. It doesn't come out in John's Gospel, but it does come out in the other three Gospels. When you get to John 15 and Jesus begins to talk about what real love is, Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down his life for his friends. And then what does he say after that? You are my friends. And he's talking about laying down his life for us so that we will be drawn out of that great and awesome and fearsome day of the Lord. Do you know what the disciples were doing? I think it's Luke's gospel says... And while they were all around listening to Jesus, they started arguing amongst themselves who was the greatest. At least three different occasions they've done that. But one was right there as Jesus was telling them about what was going to unfold. And he bears the truth that one of them is a betrayer. And they're all saying, not I, not I. And in the midst of that, they begin to argue about who is the greatest. Unbelievable, isn't it? But that's our heart. (laughs) But we are loved by the Lord. And and when you stop to to think about the love of our God for us, what it is like, it is like God himself. It's faithful and unfailing. It is eternal. It is true. It is almighty, powerful. And and he goes on to to talk about the greatness of that love of God that, that, that is expressed to you. God, from the beginning, chose you for salvation. Chose you. You come to John chapter 6. And we all know that verse as good reformed people. John 6, 44. What does it say there? Jesus is saying that no one can come to the Father unless the Father, sorry, no one can come to Jesus unless the Father, what? Draws him. Draws him. Now, we all want to do a word study on that word draw to speak about it, pale being pulled up out of the well. But but I, I was thinking, why is that word draw there? Not just because we are incapable in and of ourselves to come to God. Not because there's still nothing good within us that would make us able or even willing to come to God. We can't. 
And I was thinking of it, and it struck me something. How that was the opposite of what God did to Adam and Eve in the garden. What did he do to the highest uh, creature of creation, created in his image, when they sinned and rebelled against him? It says there in, in Genesis 3.24 that God drove them out of the garden. Now in Christ, he's drawing people back to his son. We like the doctrine of election. It makes us feel secure. But it's supposed to work in you an overwhelming humility of gratitude. Every day, my dear friends, every day, we're bound to give thanks to God because he chose us. And when did he do it? From the beginning. From the beginning of what? From the beginning, in the beginning, God created. God created with a plan to redeem those whom he had chosen from before the foundation of the world and given to his son for salvation. Not, again, not for any good in you, not for some foreseeable faith. You turn back to Ephesians chapter 1 and these words speak about what it means to be chosen. Ephesians 1 verses 3 and 4 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And what's the first spiritual blessing that he speaks there? Just as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him. In love. How did God choose you? In love. It it goes on to say, not not because there was some measure of goodness in you, not because there was a a sparkle of faith that you would, uh, in your own accord and willingness, hear the gospel and turn to him. It's solely in love he chose you. Doesn't that overwhelm your heart? Doesn't that make you realize what Paul is saying? What a debt we have to being grateful to God. And tomorrow morning, like some already, I I won't betray the name, but you'll get up, your car battery is dead, and you're going to be late for work, and you're going to have trouble after trouble after trouble, and you're going to say, why is God doing this to me? We're bound. Begins here. with a doctrine that so many Christians hate. But a doctrine, whether you believe it or not, a doctrine that God has accomplished in every one of you who are in Christ. Because there's no other way for you to be in Christ except he choose you. There isn't. And in choosing you, he sends forth his spirit to bring about that sanctification and truth in your life. 
God is good. You need a new heart, God gives it. You need faith to believe in Christ, God gives you that understanding. You need your mind open to know and understand and believe the truth of Christ. God comes with his spirit to open your mind, to renew your will, to transform you. He does the very things that he calls us to because he knows we're not able of ourselves to accomplish that. Whatever good you think you have in you, my friends, don't be deceived. Especially don't be deceived into thinking that you deserve a good life in this world. And especially as Christians, why are we bound to give thanks to our God constantly? Is because when we hear about that coming day of the Lord, when we read about what is waiting for all of the wicked who will be brought under the condemning wrath of God and bound into hell for eternal death and destruction. My dear friends, we as Christians look at that and we understand that's what I deserve. And that's what the love of God has rescued me. And that's what God the Father in sending his son son to to die in our place has pulled us out of, drawn us into his kingdom. That's what God chose you for. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that humbling? No, that electing, sanctifying love of God. And give thanks. And, and with that, we're, we're to stand fast. Uh, uh, and, uh, both a calling unto Christ has occurred in our lives, but also a calling to stand fast in this. Therefore, brethren, you know these things. Stand fast in your calling. I often get asked, Because people struggle with this doctrine of being chosen by God. How do you know you are one of the elect? And there are people who struggle to the point of discouragement and even depression at times. How do you know you are one of the elect? My friends, the simple and clear, plain answer is this. The evidence of God's electing grace in your life is known by your response to the gospel. The spirit who has called you, has called you to what in verse 14? Called you to the gospel of Jesus where you in Christ obtain that glory of God. Do you sit here and you say, I know I'm a believer then know that you are one of the elect. Because you have been called to Christ and you believe in him as Lord and Savior. And he tells us here, stand fast in that. That word stand fast is an imperative that says persevere in it. Don't allow, and and in context of what he's been dealing with, don't allow that the 
uh, trials and tribulations of this world and the evil that is going to come upon it. Don't let that steal you away from the truth of who you are in Christ. Again, I don't know how many times I've debated Christians who struggle to believe in a God who would exercise such justice against the world. Do you know what God tells us? Why why is Paul taking the time in this letter to come to these young believers, to this new church, and to say, understand, this is what's going to unfold. Why does God give us knowledge of that destruction and, and that day of wrath? It's so that your faith will be strong in the Lord in that day. So that you will indeed trust in the plan of God so that you will lay hold in your faith of the promise that God has made to you. And what is that great promise? We always come back to this chapter. I've said it often But Romans chapter 8, my friends, if you don't know this chapter, you need to memorize it. I I think it's one of the essential chapters of Scripture that speak about the assurance of that hope in Christ. And God here is, is talking about that great day of the Lord that's coming, which creation is groaning for because they know then that the, the presence of sin will be expunged from the whole of creation. And won't that be a glorious day? When we can say, there is sin no more. What a glorious day that will be. But until that day, what does he say to you, dear Christians? Understand this, Romans eight thirty five. Who can separate you from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, sinfulness, peril, sword. No. In all of those things, in all of those circumstances, we endure them in part today. What we experience in our lives today, at least in Canada, still doesn't come close to persecution that is experienced in other places in the world but still doesn't come close to this day of the Lord. What does he say? In all of those things, we are more than conquerors. We're not just conquerors. We're more than conquerors through him who loved us. That the God who has set his love upon you has set his love upon you for eternity. (laughs) Nothing is able to separate you from that love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You can persevere through these things because you know God who has chosen you for salvation has a love for you that is from Him. It is an unchangeable love. And you stand in it. Stand fast in that love. Remind yourself Every day, God, I thank you for loving me. 
Come back tonight and you will hear how great that love is as God deals with Israel, whose love for him was like the tide. You hear the story of that hymn. We're going to sing that hymn tonight. Oh, love that will not let me go. And that's what we stand in. And hold, he says there, hold the traditions which you were taught. What's that word, traditions? Is he talking about the way we do things? You all have your Christmas traditions and they may be different from one another. Is that what he means by the word traditions? No. He clarifies it. The traditions which you were taught. The tradition of truth and doctrine that have been communicated to you. Hold them. And what, what is another way of saying that is when your life is met with, with the trials and tribulations of this world, and it will be, when your faith is challenged, hold fast to that tradition of truth. Hold fast to election. Hold fast to that knowledge. God has chosen you, as he says here, chosen you for what? For wrath? For judgment, chosen you to throw you under the bus like we're prone to do with one another when things go bad or when we find ourselves in trouble? No, he's chosen you for salvation. When you hold fast to that truth, my friends, when tribulation arises, when we get closer and closer to the day of the Lord, when that man of lawlessness is revealed, we have a tradition of truth that reminds us every day, God, I have not been chosen for wrath, but for salvation. <coughs> My friends, that truth, to use the words of Jesus, that truth will set you free from fear, from anxiety, from doubt, from false teachings. It will free you. Because God wants you to endure and stand fast, persevere in this world in his truth. Hold to it. And you will be able to endure with hope and assurance. We don't have time for it. But as verses 16 and 17 bring out, God's purpose is to bless you with comfort. God has given you an everlasting consolation. These days that are coming are, are hard, grievous days. <laughs> There's no other way to put it. But what's one of the great blessings that our Lord has given to his people? Blessed are they who mourn, for they shall be what? <laughs> comforted. It's a truth that comforts your soul. The truth that reminds you that God himself will be with you in those days to speak peace, strength, and courage to your hearts. He's not a God who abandons his people. He's chosen you for salvation. Are you looking to Jesus? When you think on these things, does your faith immediately look in gratitude to God and that Thanksgiving begins to flow from your soul. Does it warm your heart? 
to know the grace of God, that undeserved love and kindness of a holy God to an unworthy sinner, that he has looked and chosen you for salvation. Give him thanks. He's due for that. Stand fast. Hold on to that truth. Hope in the Lord. Let us pray.